welcome to the Seeking Pearls podcast. My name is Rebecca Meitinger. It is great to be here with you today. We are in our second episode today in a series on the book of Colossians. We are looking at Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, going verse by verse through this letter. We are taking each chapter in two weeks. So each week of the podcast, we'll be looking at half of a chapter. So Colossians has four chapters, and we will be doing it in eight sessions. Last week, we looked at the first half of chapter one, and we got some background about where Paul was when he wrote this letter. He was in prison in Rome, and we learned about the people who are involved in the writing and the people who are there in prison with Paul, and we learned that Paul has never been to Colossae to visit the church in Colossae. But he has been told about the Colossians through his dear friend Epaphras, who planted the church in Colossae. And Paul is writing them a letter. One of the reasons that Paul is writing them a letter is because there are a lot of different beliefs and doctrines being taught in Colossae, a lot of heresies being taught, and these are getting mixed into the gospel and confusing the gospel. And so as we get deeper into the letter, we are going to see a little bit more of what are some of the issues going on and what are some of the false teachings going on in Colossae. And today we certainly get into that as well. So in today's text, Paul is going to give one of the most beautiful descriptions of who Jesus is in the entire New Testament. And part of the reason he gives this beautiful description of who Jesus is is because in the church in Colossae, some of the heresies that are going around include things about how the body is evil, the physical body is evil, and therefore Jesus could not possibly have come in the flesh. And so as Paul gets into this detailed description of Jesus himself, he makes it very clear that Jesus was born in the flesh. The flesh in and of itself is not evil. The flesh is designed by God, created by God, and it's good. And Jesus came in the body. So Paul gives this very uh, beautiful description of Jesus about how he is fully God and fully man. We will get into that in a little bit. But first of all, uh, like I said last week, uh, this is a letter. We need to remember as we read the letters in the New Testament that they are, in fact, letters. And so before we start going verse by verse and discussing all of the details of each verse, we are going to go ahead and read our chunk of scripture for today like a letter. I'm just going to read straight through it, and then we will come back and we will go through it verse by verse and discuss all of the wonderful things that we find in there. All right, so I am going to start just a couple of verses ahead of, uh, of our text for today. Our actual text that we're discussing today is verses 15 through 29, the second half of chapter 1. But I do want to just back up and catch a couple of sentences that lead us into today's text. So I'm going to start at verse 13, and we're going to review verses 13 and 14, and then go into 15. 
So verse 13 starts by saying, For he, and he in this context is God, for God has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, and then we get to verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now, I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's affliction, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. This is the word of the Lord, Colossians 1 verses 15 to 29. Oh, it's just so beautiful. This is one of my absolute favorite sections in the entire Bible. It takes my breath away. It gives me goosebumps. I am just in awe of the beauty of these words. As we begin, like I said earlier, Paul is giving an understanding of who Jesus is. He wants to make it clear to the people of Colossae because they are hearing so many heresies, so many false teachings. Um, There's a lot of Gnosticism beginning, and the Gnosticism is teaching that Jesus could not have come in a physical body. The physical body is evil. 
Um, the physical body ought to be treated harshly. Uh, we should worship angels. Jesus must have been an angel because, again, he could not have had a physical body. There's a lot of these thoughts being swirled into the gospel, and it's getting confusing. And so Paul is just laying it out there who exactly Jesus is. And there, because of the poetry in these beginning words, verses 15 through 20, theologians suspect that perhaps Paul was writing a hymn about Jesus, or he is reciting a, a known hymn about Jesus, about the person and, and about the deity of Jesus. Um, but whether he is writing a hymn or is reciting a hymn, he is telling us great truths about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is writing tremendous truths about who Jesus is. So let's go ahead and start here. Um, he had just said, that's why I repeated verses 13 and 15, or 13 and 14, because Paul was talking about how the Father has transferred us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his Son. And then Paul goes on to describe to us who is this Son. So the first thing we learn about the Son is that this is his kingdom. He has transferred us to the kingdom of the Son he loves. So the Son is the king of the kingdom. And we are to know who this king is. Like, let's find out who our king is. So in verse 15, Paul starts to tell us who is this king? Who is the son? The son is the image of the invisible God. All right. That's the first phrase he uses there. The image of the invisible God. God, the invisible, chose to put on flesh and become visible for us. It blows my mind that he who is beyond the capacity of the human eye chose to become physically visible to the human eye. He who is beyond touch put himself in a physical body so that we could reach out and touch him and know him. It's just amazing. He is beyond all of our senses, and yet he limited to himself. He put himself in a human body with the limitations of our senses so that we could experience him, so that we could know him, so that he could die for us. He became visible. The word that is used for image here when it says he is the image of the invisible God, that word in Greek is icon, E-I-K-O-N. And if you think about the way that we use the same word now, icon, I-C-O-N, that an icon is an image that represents something. Jesus is more than that, though. Jesus isn't just an image that represents God. Image in this context uh, in this, in the literal way that this Greek word is used, means the very substance or the essential embodiment of. So Jesus is the very substance of God in the essential embodiment of the invisible God. He is God made manifest. I love that old hymn from the from the eighteen hundreds. God in flesh made manifest. That is what Jesus is. Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God. He is God made manifest for us. All right, the next line says, 
the firstborn over all creation. So first of all, we find out that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And then Paul says he is the firstborn over all creation. In ancient times, and also in not so ancient times, to be the firstborn over a family indicates priority and superiority. So priority to something, becoming first, and superiority over something. Jesus was before all things. He was prior to creation, and he is also superior over all of creation. Also, as firstborn, Jesus would have privileges of all the inheritance. So Jesus is God the Son who will inherit everything. He is king over all creation, and everything is handed over to him. All authority in heaven and earth has been handed over from the Father to the Son. That happened through the ascension of the Lord Jesus, that all authority was given to Jesus. So as we look at this first verse, verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. A few verses that help us to, to look at other places in Scripture that help us understand this. Uh, one of my favorite passages in, that is very similar is in Hebrews chapter 1, where the writer of Hebrews is doing something similar. He's describing Jesus in detail. And he says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So the exact representation, everything that God is, is in Jesus, the exact representation. And in John 1.18, the apostle John writes, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father, has made him known that Jesus is, his, is himself God, and he has made God known to us. In Hebrews chapter 1, it also says that the Father speaks to us now through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. The Son will inherit everything. And in Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in the heavens and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus is authoritative over everything. All right, let's go on to verse 16. Verse 16 of Colossians chapter 1 says, For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So here we see Jesus in creation. And we learn that in him, all things were created. So nothing is created outside of him. Everything is within his realm and within his control. In him, all things were created. And then he goes on to say things in heaven and on earth, which would include then the spiritual realm and the physical earthly realm. Then it goes on to say visible and invisible. So of course we know what the visible things are. That would be pertaining to earth, the visible earth, the physical earth that we touch. But then the things invisible as well. And then the next phrase right after this is going to help us understand what that invisible creation is. The invisible creation that happened in Jesus includes thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. Now because this helps us understand the invisible creation. It's clear 
that this is pertaining to the spiritual realm. So Jesus was there at creation for the physical world, like Genesis 1 type creation, the physical world that we see, but he also is the one through whom all of the spiritual realm was created. So angels and the principalities, the rulers, the authorities of the spiritual realm, all of that was created in and through Jesus. Now, when God created the spiritual realm, he created angels, and angels fell. From my understanding, nothing demonic was created. Demons are fallen angels. So God created angels and God created the spiritual realm and those that have fallen, that is what is the demonic world. But when God created, it was good. Jesus created all things visible and invisible. And then I think about other invisible things too that Jesus created. Um, Music, science, mathematics, physics, beauty, art, joy, humor, like all of those aesthetic qualities, invisible qualities that bring so much depth to our lives. All of that was created in Christ. In him, all things were created. But then what gets really cool here is at the end of verse 16, after he lists all this, he says, he wraps it up and he says, all things have been created through him and for him. So we actually have three prepositions here. So as I try to wrap my mind around that, we already touched on the in, that nothing was created outside of him. He is, he is bigger and he is around everything that's been created and it's created within him. Like he is an umbrella that stretches across everything that has been created and it's in him. It's in him. Nothing's outside of him. But then the through him, everything has been created through him. And it makes me think of like an instrument, like the music comes through an instrument. Blowing isn't going to make any music, but you blow through an instrument and it makes beautiful music. Or the instrument of an artist, like Michelangelo used paint. So without the paint, Michelangelo could, he was still Michelangelo, but he wasn't able to create anything without the paint. But the paint in Michelangelo's hands made like beautiful masterpieces. Or the piano that Mozart played on. Mozart with just his hands, he was still a musician, but he couldn't create anything without the piano. And then when you put the piano in front of him, he made amazing music. So that's what I think of like the through, like Jesus is the instrument through which creation happened. He is the word of God. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Through him, all things were made and without him, nothing was made that has been made. That is John chapter one, verses one and through three. So Jesus is the word through which God spoke creation. And then the four, for his glory, Everything was made for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he returns and sets up his kingdom on earth, all things, all people, all created being will worship him as God. So it's all for his glory. Let's go on to verse 17. Colossians 1 verse 17 has actually been my life verse for as long as I can remember. And here's what it says. It says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is before all things. 
This is just amazing because Jesus is never surprised. He comes before everything. He knows everything. He is before all things. It brings me such great comfort and peace knowing that nothing surprises Jesus. Nothing takes him off guard. The guardian of your life will not be caught off guard. Go ahead and say that out loud. The guardian of my life will not be caught off guard. Why? Because he is before all things. Jesus is before all things. Nothing occurs without him going before it. And in him, all things hold together. He holds everything together. There is a beautiful verse in in Psalm 139. Well, the whole thing is beautiful. But I love, I don't, I should look up what verse it is, but David writes, you hem me in behind and before me. I just love that. You hem me in behind and before me. Like God is all around me. He knows everything and he hems me in on all sides of me. So it's Psalm 139 verse 5. You hem me in behind and before me. You lay your hand upon me. Psalm 139 verse 5. To to kind of compare this again, to go back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse, verses 1 through 4. In verse 3, the writers of Hebrews says about Jesus that he sustains all things by his powerful word. Just by the word of God, and that is Jesus himself. Jesus is the word, and he sustains all things. Like he keeps every planet in orbit by his powerful word and he keeps my heart beating by the power of his word and he keeps the sun in its exact right position by the power of his word by the power of his word he sustains all things verse 18 colossians 1:18 he is the head of the body the church he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. He is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head of the church. We get too wrapped up, right, in our denominations and in which leaders we follow. Jesus is the head of the body, the church. The church belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to denominations. It doesn't belong to leaders. The church belongs to Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from amongst the dead. I I love just the simplicity of the phrase, he is the beginning. Jesus is the origin, the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Also in Revelation 21, 13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He, he is the beginning, and he is also the firstborn from the dead. This one can be a little bit confusing because we think of other people in the Bible who were raised from the dead, like Lazarus was raised from the dead. And Jesus raised other people from the dead during his ministry. And so we might get a little confused by what it means that he's the firstborn from the dead. This is where my commentary 
has been super helpful. I love what it says here that Jesus is the first to rise in an immortal body. And as such, he heads a whole new order as its sovereign. Jesus is the first to rise in an immortal body. And as such, he heads a whole new order as its sovereign. And then it goes on to say, He is the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. He might be the supreme leader of everything. He might be the preeminent one, which means surpassing all others. Jesus is the supreme one underneath which we live our lives. So the message here for us is that he is supreme and we are not And so then we have a daily obligation to put our lives underneath him, to live our lives underneath him. The struggle of sin is wanting to be supreme in my own life. Like, well, I make my decisions. I lead my life. I want to be the leader of my life. And so what it means to live as a disciple of Jesus and see him as the preeminent one is to put myself underneath him every single day, to pray daily like Jesus your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and also in my life as you have it done in heaven. In verse 19, Paul begins to wrap up this description of Jesus. And he says, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, to dwell in the physical body, the human body of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's something we need to remember, that God the Son always existed. God the Son is eternal, just like God the Father and God the Spirit. And at the time when Jesus put on flesh as a human baby, that God chose to have all of his fullness dwell inside of this tiny little eight-pound baby boy. God chose to have his fullness dwell completely inside Jesus. Everything that God is dwells in Jesus. God doesn't partly dwell in Jesus or mostly dwell in Jesus. God completely dwells in the Lord Jesus Christ. And As God was pleased to have his whole fullness dwell in Jesus, verse 20 says that, and through him, through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. And God was pleased through the Lord Jesus to reconcile to himself, back to himself, all things. God was pleased to do this. My sin caused the separation between me and God, but he is the one who initiates the peace. The one through whom all things were created is the one that through whom all things are reconciled. Like he is the one who created everything. We are the ones who wandered away. And yet he is the one who reconciles and brings us back. Isn't that wonderful, my friends? He is the one who does all of it. He creates, 
He loves. He reconciles. He brings us back. That is who our God is. Paul then wants to go on and explain a little bit as why we need this reconciliation. So in verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, Once you were alienated from God, and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Now this is really wonderful because... Do you realize, again, how much he is laying on this physical body thing? Like, it's so important to the Apostle Paul that we get the message that Jesus was born in a physical body. He is fully man and fully human. He's going to go on, as the letter goes on, to talk about the death of Christ on the cross. And the thing is, if he wasn't fully man, then he couldn't have fully died. But he fully died his death to pay the penalty for our sin. And that's why it matters so much that he was fully human so that he could pay that penalty through a physical death. So in verse 22, let me read that again. But he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. God wants to present us holy without blemish, free from accusation. That is God's heart for us. That is why Jesus died for us. That is why God allowed all of himself to dwell in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ so that he could, through Jesus, reconcile us back to himself. And he was pleased to do it. And then Paul goes on and he's like begging the Colossians. Verse 23, if you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Paul is beseeching the people. Don't move from the gospel. Don't stray. Don't walk away. Don't like all the things that are being told you, all the lies, all the heresies, all the twisting of the truth that seems almost right. And it's just so easy to be like, well, that's almost what the Bible says. That's almost what we've been taught. Don't let go of the hope held out in the gospel, that we are free in Christ, that Jesus died for us, that we are sinners who have a Savior. Don't move from the hope held out in the gospel. And then he goes on to, exp- to just remind them, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the gospel that was preached to you. He's just reminding them, like, Epaphras told you this gospel. This is what you heard. It's the same gospel that I'm preaching. Don't move from it. Don't let yourself be swayed. So as Paul continues in his letter, he says in verse 24, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Okay, that can be a really confusing sentence because what it sounds like is that there's something lacking in Christ's afflictions. I mean, that that is what he says. But what he means, as we look at other translations and as we really 
figure out what is Paul saying here because it is clear throughout all of Paul's letters, it is clear that Christ's sacrifice on the cross is complete. It is entire. It is whole. There is nothing missing from Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And that is clear throughout all of Paul's letters. So when we come across something confusing in scripture, it's very important that we compare it to other scripture. So we use scripture to help us understand scripture. So we know for a fact that Paul is not saying that there's still something missing from Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So what is he saying? What is he what does he mean that I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? Well, it's helpful to look at lots of different translations. And one of the most helpful translations, I think, in this verse is to compare it to the New Living Translation. In the New Living Translation, here is how verse 24 is translated. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. So when you read it that way, what we understand then is that all suffering for the sake of the gospel, all Christian persecution, is what Paul would say, it is all part of Christ's afflictions. Every time a Christian suffers for the sake of the gospel, they are suffering Christ's afflictions. And there is a great deal of affliction for Christ still to occur as the gospel gets spread throughout the entire world. So still today, there are thousands, millions of Christians around the globe suffering for Christ's afflictions as the church continues to share the gospel and suffer on behalf of the gospel. So Paul is saying, I rejoice that I am suffering for you as I am participating in my own flesh I am participating in the suffering for Christ for the sake of the body of Christ, which is the church. I rejoice that I get to be a part of that. In verse 25, he says, I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Now, if you weren't with us during the first session, you might want to go back and pick that up. But Paul was not commissioned by a human being. In fact, at the very beginning of Colossians, he says that he was commissioned by God there as well. And then here he repeats it, that he was commissioned by God. He was called as an apostle by God. He came to know the gospel, to understand the gospel through direct revelation by the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And so God called him in a very personal way and gave him the commission to go out and present the word of God. Now, I want to really focus on this part for a little bit. He says, God gave me the commission to present to you the word of God in its fullness. And then in verse 26, he says, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. So Paul is saying, I have been given commission by God to preach about the mystery that God kept hidden, wrapped up for ages 
and generations. But now he wants it made known to his people and to the nations. He wants to make the mystery known. And he has given Paul the job of making it known. So he says, it is now disclosed, this mystery is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, and this would be specifically to the Jews, to Israel, to the Lord's people, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Okay, that can be hard to catch, so let's break this down. To them, to the Jews, God's people for ages and generations past, to them, God now has chosen to make known that even amongst the Gentiles, he is pouring out his glorious riches of the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what he's saying is the mystery of God has many levels, but right here what he's saying is that even in the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, the Holy Spirit has been poured out for all people, not just the Jews, but even in the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit is willing and able and desires to go into all people and be Christ in them, the hope of glory, Gentile and Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, male, female. In Paul's other letters, he makes it clear that there is no difference. There is no favoritism. We are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the mystery of God that Jesus is for everybody and that through Jesus the Gentile and the Jew are made one and the Holy Spirit is willing, able, and desiring to indwell any single person who would believe on the Lord Jesus. This is the mystery of God. And Paul said, I get to declare this and make it known. Christ in you is the hope of glory. In verse 28, he says, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we can present everyone fully mature in Christ. Paul doesn't want people to just stop at believing in Jesus. He wants them to press on to maturity, to grow in Christ, to become like Jesus, to be transformed into the image of God, to know him intimately and personally. So he teaches everyone with all wisdom in a desire to present everyone fully mature in Christ. And then he wraps up this section by saying, to this end, to the end that I want everybody to be fully mature in Christ. Towards that goal, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. If you remember, Last week I said that we learn a great deal about how to pray when we study how Paul prays. This is a wonderful example of that. He says, to this end, to the goal that he wants to preach Christ so fully that people don't just stop at believing in Christ, but that they would grow up in Christ and mature in Christ, 
He says, to this goal, I strenuously contend with all the energy and that Christ so powerfully works in me. He is praying. He is strenuously contending, praying, fighting in battle for the people to become mature in Christ. This is how the Apostle Paul prays. I'm not sure that when I pray and I sit down with my cup of coffee, I'm not sure that I can call it strenuous. I'm learning to be more strenuous in my prayer. I'm learning to contend more, to be more, um, to really see it as contending in a spiritual battle on the behalf of my family. I'm working on that and I am growing in that. But I have so long to go. I have such a far way to go to develop my prayer life to be this pattern of strenuous contending with all of the energy that Christ works in me to present my people, my household, the people that God has put in my care, the people who, when we studied First Peter last summer, we talked about who are the sheep that God has called you to shepherd. My aim is for them to grow mature in Christ. Am I strenuously contending for that? I want to be. I want to share with you a little bit more as Paul is talking about this great mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now it's been disclosed to the Lord's people. He writes about that more in the book of Ephesians. The book of the Ephesians and the book of Colossians were written at the same time and delivered at the same time. Ephesus and Colossae were very near to one another, and we know through uh through the writings at the ends of both those letters, that Tychicus was going to deliver both letters at the same time. So they were written at the same time, and they they mirror each other very, very closely. So in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is going to write more about this mystery. So I want to share with you from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 2 through 11 is what I will read. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written about briefly. Okay, I'm not totally sure where he already wrote about it briefly. It could have been in another letter. But he also does talk in in chapter 2 about the inclusion of the Gentiles. So he might be referring to that. He could also be referring to the letter of Colossians where he writes more briefly about this mystery. Anyway, he already wrote briefly about the mystery. Verse 4. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. So Paul makes it clear here also that he's not the only one who has received Uh, the clarity of this mystery. In Acts chapter 10, we see Peter getting a vision uh, when he gets called to Cornelius' house. Peter gets a vision of this mystery when he finds out that the gospel is for the Gentiles as well. So Paul knows that he's not the only one who has received this mystery. Verse 6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel members together of one body and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. 
oh dear friends, we can read over this so quickly because we're used to this. We've been raised in the church and by and large, probably everyone listening to this podcast is a Gentile. Perhaps some of you are uh, Jewish by race and that is amazing and wonderful and I want to meet you and talk to you. But most of us are Gentiles and this we read, we can read over this so easily, but this is earth shattering, dear friends. <laughs> this is earth shattering. That I'm going to read verse six again. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given to me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. Isn't that beautiful? I just love Paul's humility here because he knows what he was before Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. He was, he hated the gospel. He hated Jesus and he worked hard to kill the message of the gospel. So in verse 8 he says, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches in Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, let me read that again because this is so mind-blowing again. So the mystery was kept in God, kept hidden in God for ages and generations. And verse 10, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, don't lose the magnificence here. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Dear friends, do you get that? The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms are angelic beings. They are the rulers and the authorities of the heavenly places, the angelic beings. And there's, um, I think it's in First Peter where we are told that angels long to look into the things of the return of Christ. What he's saying is here is that we get more insight and the church lets the authorities of the heavenlies know what's happening. That through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known to the angelic beings. It's staggering. It takes my breath away. Through the church. That is the honor with which God has bestowed the church. Praise be to God. The mystery of God, the inclusion of the Gentiles, that Gentiles and Jews are sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus, that Jesus would dwell in all of us and he is the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This mystery was kept hidden all through the Old Testament times and now has been revealed 
to the world, and it is the job of the church to bring this message to the world. The Apostle Paul worked strenuously towards this goal, prayed strenuously toward this goal, and I have to ask myself, how am I doing? God has given each of us a great mystery, a great mystery, a mystery that still today, 2,000 years after this letter was written, people still don't know. There's still so many thousands of people who don't know the great mystery of God, which in fact is no longer a mystery. He has made it known. And it's the job of the church to let everybody, the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms and here on earth, it's the job of the church to make it known. Are we making it known that we have a great mystery? He is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Are we working strenuously to make the mystery known? That is the question before us this week. Next week, we're going to dive into Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to talk more about the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that lie in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you have a wonderful week. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.